Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Um, I guess if I had a title, and I usually need one for the bulletin for this week, uh, probably Invincible would be the title for the conclusion of Romans chapter 8. And good theology ought to result in good practice. It's not just for us to be mesmerized by it. It's not just for us to be amazed by it. It's not for us to feel smarter. It's for us to say, wow, that kind of theology ought to be put into practice. As one writer that I really love, Tim Hansel, puts it, theology should turn into biography. It should take over our lives, and we should live out what we have learned. And Paul will give us that chance to some degree at the end of this talk. Now, this whole series began with a note or a a reference to the weight of glory. Way back in January, we started Romans with the weight of glory by C.S. Lewis. And in there, it's probably fitting we, we, we conclude the series with it, a little comment from it. He talks about an inconsolable secret. And I love it because what he's saying is, is that the glory that God has awaiting us, we've been looking at in this chapter, is something that ultimately meets our needs in a way that nothing on this earth ever could. And our inconsolable secret is that we have searched on this planet to find something to fulfill us, and it never really does. And that inconsolable secret is that one day we will have that fulfillment. And he writes in here a number of things that are just amazing. But the point is that our real goal is elsewhere. At the end of the day, our life, everything we experience here, he writes this, they are not the thing. No matter what you have or want to feel, want to possess, or want to know, or want to hear, or want to see, that you think would bring you ultimate fulfillment, He says, it is not the thing. They just reflect what the real thing is, that there is something beyond. He says, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have not yet visited. That's life here. He said in mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience this world can satisfy, no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So he says, one day, the door we've been knocking on, the end of the weight of glory, he says, one of these days, the door we've been knocking on all our lives will be open. And that's a great truth. Everything that God is doing for you will ultimately satisfy all of the longings that we have, and it is a great promise, and it is something to look forward to. Now, regarding the glory that is ahead of us, for which we were saved, nothing, Paul has argued, can stop it. Nothing can stop the process of your transformation once it starts. It's unstoppable. That means every believer in Christ is invincible. We saw in Romans 8 last week. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things 
work for good. And we said that the good was the ultimate glory. That's the end. That's everything we've been talking about. That's our ultimate transformation in Christ. That's what C.S. Lewis is talking about. That's everything. Our utter transformation. We get saved here. That means all things in this life. How do we connect all the things that we are now all the way to the end one day? And Paul connects them again by one thing, God's work. God is sovereign, he is strong, he is powerful, and he is able to make And he does for his children. He makes everything work together to accomplish this goal. That's why Paul says nothing can can hurt you, nothing can separate you from God. And the reason nothing can separate you from him is because everything you think might do it, he uses to accomplish the good that he's trying to accomplish. All right? And he says this is for those who love God. That's the first part. In fact, this text here is sandwiched between two things. First, to those who love God. And this comes first. To those who love God, all things work for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. So sandwiched in between that great statement is this idea that we are called according to his purpose and for those who love him. Now listen, this is not all dependent on the first part, which is our love for him. It's our response. This is really important. Paul doesn't often use God's love or our love for God as a way to describe believers, but he is doing it here. And I think there's a reason for it. It's because God's love, which takes up most of the text below, is what prompts our love. God is not dependent on our love. Mind handing me that water, buddy. Thank you, sir. God is not dependent on our love. He's not coerced by our love. Remember, we said our love's fickle, and sometimes we feel like our love is the problem. And it's real clear in the text that we love him as a response to his love. He's not coerced by our love. He's not manipulated by our love. Our future's not dependent on our love. That's why he puts, it's to those who are called according to his purpose, and then 29 and 30 all support the purpose part, what he does. Our love is only in response to his. And that's critical because we feel fickle sometimes. And I'm going to bring up this point a little bit later. Um, But our relationship with God is not mechanical at all. It's based on a response to his great love to us. His love evokes our love. Not our love comes first. Our love doesn't put the plan in place. Do you understand? Our love does not put the plan in place. His love, which is the plan, is what causes us to respond in love. I was reading this thing, and you've probably maybe heard this before. It's an old story about a guy who wasn't really in love, and he wrote a letter to his girlfriend, and he said this, I'd cross the burning sands to be by your side. You can almost see him writing it, because haven't we all, which guy in here hasn't written this? I'd cross the burning sands to be by your side. I'd swim the deepest ocean to be near you. And he closes the letter with, if it doesn't rain, I'll be over tonight. (laughs) That's how we feel about our love. Our love just can be wishy-washy. Some days it's great, some days, hey, I don't love you so much today. You know that love. Okay, well, God's purpose never fails. It never ends. It never wavers. And so it is based on on his love. And that's what we're going to see in this text. So the weighty point, really, 
is this is God's purpose for us, and its purposes cannot be thwarted. Can anyone in here say something God wants to happen isn't going to happen because you decided something? Would that make any sense? Hey, does anybody want a future that's dependent on us? What a horrific gift to give human beings. Yeah, the whole entire universe is dependent on what you do today. That's a horrific gift. None of us would get out of bed. So if you don't like the idea of God being sovereign, look at the alternative real closely. Okay? And then you'll vomit. That's right, you'll vomit. All right? Amazing that something he would want. Remember Daniel says his purposes can't be thwarted, nor can they be argued with. That's the point he makes in Daniel. So, those are his purposes. Now, what is described now as that purpose, how he builds on that is a really beautiful couple of verses in 29 and 30, and they are called the golden chain of security. That's what theologians refer to verses 29 and 30 is the golden chain because there are five verbs all describe God's action. They all describe what he does in salvation that secures us. There are five verbs that take us all the way to the end and communicate security and solidarity. And there's no way out once you're in. There's no way out once you're in. And so these five verbs, okay, which by the way, none of them are our actions. They're all what he does from beginning to end. All right, they start in eternity past, and they go all the way to eternity future. And you just see God's purpose from one end to the other. And the idea that he wouldn't complete it is absolutely ludicrous to Paul and to the text. And so he says there's five actions that God has. The first one is, here's how we know, he's going to take us into eternity past with the first two verbs. The first one is, he foreknew us. And this word, <clears throat> a little complicated sometimes in people's minds because they think what this is, is, hey, the only plan God has is he has looked into the future to see what humans are going to do, and then because he knows what they're going to do, he decides what he's going to do. Does that make sense? We don't even exist yet in this moment. He's already eternally existing. He's not dependent on us for anything or or any reason. This verb is used six times in the New Testament. Four times it's describing not a knowledge beforehand, but a choice beforehand. And that's what that verb means. It's a relational term, not a cognitive term. It means I loved you. It means I chose you. It means I dedicated myself to you. All right? I set my affection on you. You can go back to the Old Testament, you really see this. This is like Adam knew Eve. We know what he meant. When you go to Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, you see God says uh, to Israel, he says, you have I known, only you have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what does he mean by that? You're the only family on the earth I know. You're the only nation on the earth I know. What do you know? What he means is, you're the only family I picked. You're the only family I loved ahead of time. I set my affection on you. So before it ever started, God loved us. 
That's what this means. He loved us before there was anything to love. In fact, that's what this pronoun is. He loved us. Not something about us, not something we might do, not something we might say, not even something we might believe. He just loved us. That's what started the whole plan before you even existed. He knew you. He loved you. He chose you. That's the idea of foreknowledge. Now, let me say this about God's love. At the end of the day, and we'll see this by the time we conclude the text, what transforms you is God's love. His love evokes your love. His love for you starts a transforming process. Your love for him keeps the transforming going. Listen, don't ever serve God and love God. You'll never really change unless you love God in return for him loving you. That's what the Christian life is. It's not a religion. It's I love him because he first loved me. My love is a response to his love. It doesn't ignite or initiate his love. His love comes first. That's really important. That's how radical and unconditional God's love is. His love evokes our love. I want to say a couple things here. My wife now and then, and perhaps your wife will say to you now and then, she'll say something to you in, in, in a moment. Do you love me? You love me? Sometimes it's like that. Do you love me? Because she's got some questions. You know, something you're doing is questionable. Or sometimes it's just one of those tender moments where she goes, you know what she wants to know? Because the second question is, because you're going to say what? Because you know what you're supposed to say. There's only one answer. Of course I love you. Why? And this, I want you to know, this hurts a man's brain. I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but this really, really, really hurts a man's brain. Not only to think it, but then to get it out of his mouth is just really hard, the whole thing, all right? And you'll go through stuff, and you'll say stuff, and you don't want to be the same every time because it's monthly you get this question. You're fun, you're cool, uh, you're beautiful, right? You're sharp, you're a caring person. Um, you're, I respect you, and you just go through the list. And, you know, sometimes it's your hair, whatever you got to say, you say. But if she's thinking in her heart, she might say to herself, well, what, what if I lose those things? What if I'm not that attractive lady? What if I lose that hair you love? What if I lose my mental faculties later? What if I'm not so fun later? And then all of a sudden, you could get really scared in that moment, couldn't you? Because we understand just such a conditional love. We just think of it that way. And you know what God is saying here? God, why do you love me? God, do you love me? Oh, I love you. Why do you love me? Just because I love you. Not anything you do, not anything you are. You could never lose. You don't get it and lose it. God's not one of those He's not coerced by your love, your mood, or your love, or what you have, or what you don't have. He just loves you because he loves you. And that's, an and that's what's transforming about Christianity. No other religion can claim. That's what keeps us loving him. It's such a radical, unconditional love. And that's what's transforming. If you've ever read The Velveteen Rabbit, it came to my mind. 
Because what transforms us, what makes us into something substantial, C.S. Lewis said, something real. Remember Velveteen Rabbit is this. The little discussion goes, well, what is real, asked the Velveteen Rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you or a stick handle, stick out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when someone loves you for a long, long time. Not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, though, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or is it bit by bit? Doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints, and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. Once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. Isn't that great? You know, God's love is transforming us, making us more real all the time. That's what it is. You know, 2 Corinthians 3, I have that on here, but I got to have this to get it. All of us with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as we look at God, are being, look, transformed into the same image. And look how he describes it, from glory to glory. Get a little more glorious Every day. The whole process of transformation is considered a glory process. One day we'll be ultimately glorified from head to toe, every cell in our body. But until then, it's just one little bit of glory all the time. We're just loved into realness. And it's really painful to be loved by God like this. I mean, someday you stop loving me so much. Because you're a really good lover, God. And you're killing me. But you get more real all the time. And everything that changes and transforms in you can't ever be taken away. It's a wonderful picture, but it all starts with God's love. <clears throat> and it moves. To whom he foreknew, he predestined. And all that means is decide ahead of time. It just means he preordained. Once he decided to love you, for no reason at all except that he wanted to, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says, I chose you in, in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And then he says he did it according to his own will, no one else's. But then he determined, he preordained that you would be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, in heaven, before you were ever created, before you were anything really to love, he loved you and already determined the end before the beginning even started. Do you notice that? The end was already determined before you even existed. This is the eternal, eternally past planning of God. Long before you were ever created, this was already decided. There's no way out of it. What was determined was that you would be like his son. And this 
likeness reminds us of Romans 5, where the image of God's, where the image, we're either in Adam's image or Christ, Christ's likeness or Adam's likeness. Remember, we get transferred into the image of God. And so we get transferred over to Christ, we will be just like him, that's what it is. It's not our circumstances that matter to God, it's our character. And listen, circumstances, Paul will tell us, cannot destroy you. Hear this. Circumstances can't destroy you, but your character can. Can you feel that? Circumstances cannot destroy you. Paul will argue that all the way down to verse 39. Triumphantly. But your character can. And so what we want ultimately is to be transformed, and that's why God is transforming our character all the time. Because it's our character that matters. There's a certain kind of person in heaven, and there's a certain kind of person who isn't. And the kind of person who is is being transformed into the kind of person God intended us to be. That's why character matters, and that's why character is a part of the entire salvation process from beginning to end. And ultimately, Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. And all that means firstborn doesn't mean chronology or birth order not that he's first in that sense but that he's preeminent and supreme is the idea that he is the one who sets the tone God designed before eternity or in eternity past before history even started as we know it he had already determined that Christ would have a family of of brothers which would mean God would have other sons that's the adoption in Romans 8. And that whatever they looked like, they would, he would be the preeminent one. He would set the pattern for the new race and the new humanity. And in eternity, he sets it. And we all look to him. In this text, the older brother, we look to him as to what reality is and who we become. That was always God's plan. That's eternity past. And then... You get to 30. And I want you to notice something in here, how tight this is and why this is considered a chain. Because it's really important. These, who are these? These are the ones who are foreknown and predestined in 28 or 29. These, this pronoun keeps it really tight. Don't lose who's in 28. Keep them tight. These same ones that he predestined, and he repeats the verb to make sure you there's no confusion. That's how tight it is. He also called. Now, with these two verbs, we enter human reality. We get called. If God foreloved us, and he preordained that we'd become like a son, at some point in history, he's got to call us to himself, and that's when we're saved. That's If I had time, I'd show you in Scripture where that's synonymous with salvation. That's when God calls you to himself. It's not dependent on your response. It's dependent on his calling. You respond because he calls. It's an irresistible call. It's what theologians call an effectual call. When he says it, and if you know Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you remember. It did not seem optional when it came to you. Irresistible. And that's the irresistible call right there. That's come sometime in your life and history. That call comes. And when it comes, you can't help but have it. And then notice, these who he called, he's keeping it really tight. 
And so he wants you to say to yourself every time, repeat the whole thing. Those he foreknew, those he predestined, those he called. Those same ones, he repeats it again, he justified. We saw Romans, really three to five, deal with this subject of justification. Those ones he called, he made them right with God. That's what that is. He made them right with God. Because of what Christ did, he makes us right with God, right with himself. And those very same ones he justified, look, these whom he justified, how tight is it? It is so tight. There's no one lost in here. There's not a these in here that's vulnerable. These very same ones, look, he glorified. And what's so interesting is that now we enter eternity future right here. So we started in eternity past, come into the present, move all the way to the future, and notice the future is depicted as though it's in the past. This is a past tense verb for something that's going to happen to you future. Okay? And when they, whenever the aorist tense is used for the future, just, it's just presenting the fact as certain. Something that hasn't happened yet as though it has already happened. That's what he's saying. That's how certain glorification is your future. Your future is so certain that I can speak of it as already being done. That's why it's called the golden chain of security. Isn't that awesome? There's no way out of that. Okay, in the MMA, that's a rear naked choke right there. You're locked. You're not going anywhere. You're hooked, and you're not going anywhere. And that's what that text is saying. The decision has already been made. It had already been made what was going to happen because as soon as he predestined us to become like his son, that's essentially glorification, and that was already made in the, in the past. So it's unstoppable. You are invincible spiritually. You're invincible. Now, that locks down the reality. So when, when you get to 31 to 39, this little hymn that closes the book, that really closes the salvation section. And all Paul's going to do now is celebrate that reality and try to get your mind to think about it a little bit in a different way. And so let's, let's just look at it. Uh, I'm going to try to cover it a little different way so we can handle it a little bit faster and emphasize the things that really matter. Okay, so you can study this text some more yourself. It's really divided into two sections, two important sections, 31 to 34, 35 to 39. Okay, this section here is judicial. It's like being in a courtroom. It, it, it flash forwards you to the future and imagines you dying and in heaven and walking into some like this imaginary courtroom and you stand before the judge. Can anyone condemn you? It's judicial. All the terms in it, uh, this idea of being for us, this idea of being delivered up, um, can anyone bring a charge against you? He is the one who justifies, who condemns, intercedes. It's just like a, like a episode of Perry Mason. You know what I'm saying? It's all judicial. It just flash forward. How many of you don't know who Perry Mason is? Because that's a sin right there. I want to throw up if you don't know who Perry Mason is. That makes me sick. All right? 
uh, that's a TV lawyer right there who never, won, never lost, I mean, I think he only lost one time in all of the history of his doing it. How'd you like to be that other lawyer who was on that show every week and lost every week? You know, he never did any other acting and died early. And I think it was because of that. Never won anything. Condemns and intercedes. So there it is. You've got this, this phenomenal, divine, heavenly courtroom. And you walk in there. And the question is, do you walk in as an outlaw, a criminal, what you knew yourself to be at some point? Or do you walk in there as, as the elect, confident? And so that's the first section has to do with this judicial side. And the, and the real fact is, is notice how it starts. Each one of the sections, the two sections, just have some rhetorical questions to get your mind working. So Paul's going to say to the end of chapter 8, 1 through 8, what do you say? What do you say to these things? What do you say to these things? And keep these things in mind because these things are all, everything I've said about eternal security, everything I've said about eternal salvation, what can you say to that? And notice what he says. I don't think it can be said any clearer. And I think if I'm sitting here today, I'm asking this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, what better way to put what it means to be saved or lost than right here. If you're saved, God is for you. If you're lost, he's against you. There cannot be a better or worse condition on the planet. Paul's about to describe a lot of things that can be really bad in this life. None of them can be worse than, than God saying, I am not on your side. And the whole book started in Romans 1 with him saying, you're on my bad side. The wrath of God is falling from heaven. It's being revealed from heaven on all sinners, all those who rejected me. That's, being, that's God being against you. And by the time you get to chapter 8, Paul, because of what God has done, and he's about to show us what it was, how does God go from being against us to for us? If he's against you, that's the worst possible scenario. If he's for you, that's best case. So what does it mean that God would be for me in that court? When we walk into that courtroom way into the future, and there's some heavy hitters in there, scary heavy hitters, who really do have cases against me, because I haven't lived perfectly, Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This verse, I can't even tell you how amazing it is, but watch this. John Piper calls this the solid logic of heaven, and I love that statement so much that I just couldn't wait to say it. The solid logic of heaven. Is there any way God could not be for us once he is? The solid logic of heaven is think about it this way. This is how heaven thinks about that question. He gave us his only son. He delivered him up, gave him for us. And it's his own son, his precious son, what meant the most to him in the world. This is an argument from greater to lesser. If I gave you my son to get you, is there anything I wouldn't give you to keep you? That's the argument. 
He's already made that argument already in Romans 5. If I died to justify you, wouldn't I live to reconcile, to make you a friend? And now that you're a friend, wouldn't I keep you? If I died when you were an enemy, now that you're a friend, wouldn't I do more for you? And wouldn't it be easier since I've already given you the hardest thing? I've already given you the hardest thing. How, how would I not freely, look at this line, freely give you all things? And here's this all things again. It goes back to Romans 8. And by the way, just in your text, I don't have time to go over it. Read 1 Corinthians 3.22. Right here with this all things. Where Paul says, all things are yours. The idea there is very similar. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is the all things that are necessary for us to get to the good and the glory. If I started this out by giving you my best, the best I have, wouldn't I freely give you anything else? And notice this. This is the word for grace. That's why it's, and you know, the, the word for grace is the same word for give or the gift. Charis. All right, so you have freely give. Because sometimes we think of salvation like this. I got saved by grace, but I get to heaven by the skin of my teeth. I don't know how I'm going to get there. Right? That all the rest of the Christian life is I got to figure out how to claw my way to heaven. And what he's saying here, no, 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 that's not true. From beginning to end, it's grace. If I gave you my son in grace, I will freely, graciously give you everything else you need. It's all by grace. From beginning all the way to end. When you get to heaven, you won't go, boy, you never believe how hard I had, how all I did to get here, man. In fact, I'll tell you what. You got some time? Because I'd like to go over a few things with you. Because that's us. We're going to get there amazed that he led us in there. He did it all. It's all by grace. Why would he not demand anything from you at the beginning of salvation, but then have all these demands that he can't handle before you reach the end of salvation? He started the process. He finished it. What does Hebrews say? He is the author of our faith and the what? The finisher. Isn't that great? It's great. It's all these things freely are yours, and they're easy because I've already given you my son. That's the solid logic of heaven. That's how heaven thinks of it right there. This part's easy. You think it's the hardest part for me. That's the easy part. The easy part is keeping you. I already did the hard part. So who will bring a charge? Here we are in there. And look how he calls us our elect. We don't come in there as criminals or outlaws. We come in there as the elect of God. There's no charge that can be brought against us. Can it? Will somebody do it? Yes, yeah, Satan. Revelation 12, Satan says he's an accuser. and He's always before the throne of God whining about you. And telling the truth about you, by the way. God, Satan always tells the truth to God about you. He never tells you the truth about God. Okay, when he gets to heaven and he starts moaning about all the rotten things you've done, you better believe he's right. He's not lying about that. But God says, hey, I know everything. You don't even know everything. Hey, I, he's worse than you think he is. Isn't that cool? <laughs> hey, Satan, you don't even know everything, man. That dude's worse than you said he was. Come here, I'll tell you some stories. But he's my elect. I love him. 
And when he says my elect, it's because I love him. This is all about me loving him. It's not about what he did or what he didn't do. It's about me loving him, not him loving me. Do you see? Even though our love is a response to his love and will always be a response to his love and can never stop because he never stops, it's all about his love for me. And he says, God's the one who justifies. If I'm the one who made him right with me, then who can, who can make him unright? Because there's no higher court than me. There's no higher appeal. And I'm the final word. I make the judgment. So then who can condemn? If I justify, who can condemn? Now look what he says here. Four things. Christ died. He's coming back to this argument again. Christ died. Rather, oh, even more than that, he died to procure salvation, but he raised to affirm it. If he'd have just died, then it wouldn't have been any good, but he rose from the dead, making the death work. So he rose from the dead, and this almost rather means more so. Not only did he die, now he lives. Well, you're in big trouble now, because he lives. And, you're, and he's at the right hand of God. He has all the authority. That's the final authority right there. There's no higher court. Not only did he do the deed, he sits in the right seat. And as he sits in the right seat, he intercedes. And let me just make this point to you because I think it's important. I don't want you to get the idea here that intercession is this kind of thing where God has to, Jesus wakes up every day and has to plead your case. I know he was really bad today, and I don't know if he's going to make it. And God's like, oh, no, he's out. That's it. I'm sick of him. That's how we feel sometimes. And he's got to plead our case every day. Well, I'm just uh, peachy or falling. Here we go again. All right. Uh. That's not how it is. The intercession is by virtue of his presence at the right hand and the fact that he has accomplished salvation for us is what intercedes for us. It's not him waking up every day going, I don't think, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm going to argue him in. I'm going to argue him in every day. That's not it. Even Hebrews 7 doesn't suggest that. It's just the fact that he did what he did and that he sits where he sits makes it all done. And it almost pleads your case by virtue of having been accomplished and him sitting at the right hand of God. There's nothing more to be done or said. That is the idea. So, in the courtroom, you're good. I mean, judicially, legally, this thing is over. There's no higher court. When you get to verse 35, look, this changes now. Now, instead of being judicial, we get relational. Let's look at it from a relational side. And instead of being in heaven in some courtroom, now we're right back smack down here on earth where everything's rough. So Paul's just basically taking the whole truth of justification in 2 through 5 or 3 through 5, and he's just kind of put you in a courtroom in heaven and showed you how it works. Nothing can, nothing can defeat that. Now he's going to take you right back to earth and say, yeah, but I know down here you're wondering some things. And look at the language he uses here. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So now it's not just a legal thing. Christ isn't just Perry Mason. He's not just some lawyer in heaven pleading your case that you don't know or love. He loves you. He loves you, and nothing can separate you from that love. Now, let me tell you what that means. His love has a pulling effect. It has a strength to it. It's not a weak love. 
Okay, it's the kind of love that draws you in. Remember Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me. The reason I can be anything God asks me to be is because he loves me first. His love evokes my love. So nothing can separate me from that love, and I want to speak to it, because some people argue this. Okay, you're right. Satan has no shot at getting me out of this salvation security. God wouldn't take me out of it. Christ wouldn't take me out of it. Even myself, which condemns me every now and then, according to 1 John, sometimes my own conscience makes me feel like I'm lost. 1 John even says, no, you can't do it either. But sometimes we say, oh, okay, so God would never let me loose, but I could loose myself. Ever hear that? But what if I wake up today and I don't want it anymore? It's impossible for a lost, it's impossible for a true believer to ever want to be out of it. The scriptures give the exact reality of a person who thinks he's saved, but he isn't, and he eventually abandons the love. But God's love is so powerful that it evokes our love, and our love never ceases. We will always love him because of his love. We can never abandon it. That's really important. So legally we're secure, relationally we are secure. Circumstances can't change that. God's love makes it impossible for you to walk away from him. You might struggle, but you will never walk away from him. It's those who are apostates that do that, who, who look in, who act like they're in, who say they're in, but they're not really in. Read 1 John. They left us because they weren't really of us. That's the idea. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. This is a really important verse. I want to show you something here. For we have become partakers of Christ if, watch this, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. How do we get from the beginning to the end? Here it is. Can't be said any clearer than this text right here. How am I going to get all the way to the end? Can I let myself out of this loop? Well, the idea here is not if you make it to the end, you're a partaker of Christ. The idea is partakers of Christ make it to the end. You see the difference? Oh, if I get to the end, if I can just get to the end, if I can just get to the end, and I'll, I'll be in, I'll be in. No, uh that's not how it works. You make it to the end if you are a partaker of Christ. If you have Christ, you make it to the end. That's what Romans 5 says. Our hope is secure and doesn't disappoint in chapter 5 and verse 4. Why? Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts in verse 5. So why would he say that? Why has his love been poured out in our hearts? And why does that motivate us to the end? Because once God loves you, the way he loves you, you can't ever come out of that love and you never will if you're the real deal. That's what he's saying. God's love is not stronger than anything but you. That doesn't sound right, does it? His, his love is stronger than anything. He can do anything except for what I say. Come on. So you're locked in. And C.S. Lewis makes this great point about to be loved by God 
and not pitied. We're not pitied. We're loved. We're not pitied by God, he says. We're loved. We're delighted in, like an artist delights in his work, or as a father, his son. It seems impossible, but it's a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. And he's right. Can't even imagine a love like that. A love so strong that it pulls me in. And that's what he is saying here. I cannot be separated from his love. God is not fickle. God does not play games, and he is not petty like we are in relationships. Well, if you... That's not how God is every day. And it just makes me want to say one other thing to you about when I was scared to pray. Don't pray for patience. You ever hear that? As if God is up there waiting for an opportunity or a reason to pounce on you because you're such a pain in the neck. You can pray for anything you want. Because even when you pray for patience, don't you think he's smart enough to know whether or not to really give it to you? He's too smart. What do you think, just because you asked what you're getting it? He's not petty. Don't ask God for that. He'll hurt you. Like he's some sick, petty. That's not God. You pray anything you want to pray. And thank God he's smart enough to know what to do with it. Now watch this. Can anything separate us from God? Let's look at this. Now Paul gets really real here. Because Paul's about to mention everything that's actually happened to him. And he lists them in 2 Corinthians. Every one of these things have actually happened. Tribulation happened to him. Distress happened to him. Persecution happened. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all of it. This happens. This is not listed in 2 Corinthians because it doesn't happen to him until later. That's death. So you got tribulation, which is external stress. you got internal stress, which is distress. you got the possibility that somebody could kill you. You've got famine or nakedness. So you got deprivation. What happens if I'm deprived? What happens if something dangerous really happens? Or what if I die eventually? Can any of those separate? No, none of them can. You know what the idea here is? Not that the act itself can. Because you know what the real danger is here? Is that one of these might make you run away from God. Haven't you known people when the pressure gets hot, they run? It's a temptation in all of us, but people who really know God, they're not going anywhere. They can't. Remember, they're locked. The point is, is that no trial or temptation that comes from a trial will ever really kick you off the trail because he loves you too much and you know it. And even though this hurts, you're not going anywhere. Now watch. Isn't that that awesome? Now watch. He quotes Psalm 44. I'm going to give you two chapters to read when this series is over, and it's over today. Sometime this week, you need to read Psalm 44, because he quotes Psalm 44 right here, verse 22. Read the whole psalm. It's amazing. He says, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to the slaughter. Hey, suffering is no new thing to the believer. They've been doing it ever since when? In fact, Psalm 44 is the perplexity of a believer. Okay? Wondering why he's suffering. And in it, you'll see the greatest response ever of a group of sufferers who know they didn't do anything to deserve it, wonder why God has seemingly left them alone, and listen to their response to him. It's, the, it's I'm telling you, it's a fabulous read. They never leave his side. But all this verse does is say, hey, it was true of them in the Psalms, it's true of us today. Just consider yourself a sheep to the slaughter. For his sake, we hurt. 
But not only can they not separate us from God, all these things back to verse 28, but we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer through him. You know what that means? When you subjected an enemy, when you defeated an enemy, that was the way you conquered them. You super conquered them, which is what this word means, huper. You know, Nike is where we get our, it's the Greek word for victory. Okay, Nike is a, is a Greek word. So nikao, the verb, you've got overwhelmingly conquer, huper nikao. That's super victorious. How are you super victorious over things, the things that are hurting us, destroying us, tempting us? How are we super conquerors over those? We're super conquerors because not only does God defeat them and is he stronger than them, but he uses them. You know, the worst thing you could do to an enemy besides defeat him was make him subservient to you. Make him serve your purposes now. Make him your slave. This is just repeating verse 28. God has made all things not only defeated, but subject to us. He uses them to make us what he wants us to be. And he does it because of his love. It's because he loved us that it happens. So, finally, look what Paul says. And here's the big kicker. This is the question at the end of the text. Now he leaves been saying it in the first person plural. We, us. Now he gets first person singular. And he says, I am convinced. And this now becomes the question for you. Are you? This would, this would be what I would ask you now. You've heard Romans 1 through 8. Are you convinced? Are you ready to go? Do you understand? Because you've got to be convinced. If you're convinced, then nothing can defeat you. That you, you you'll, you'll sail through death, life, Angels, principalities, demonic things, things present, whether they happen now or about to happen or going to happen in the future, whether they're things to come or powers and height, depth, no matter how high it is, deep it is. And if you're picky, all right, any other created thing. If you need one more thing, not a one of these. And Paul is the one who lived through them all and proves it. None of these can separate you from the love of God. Here it is again for the third time. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. The second chapter I would encourage you to read is Jeremiah chapter 31. And it starts out with God talking to Israel and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then he goes to describe that love for Israel and what they have done and it is magnificent. His love cannot ever fail. To say that you can lose your salvation is to say God's love can fail. That God is not the highest quarter, highest power. That his plan doesn't always happen. That's what you're saying if you say you can lose your salvation. In Christ Jesus our Lord, you are invincible. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love you. Guide us now in communion in Jesus' name. Amen.